Hi, welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm here with Adam. And I'm Daryl. And I'm Caleb. So this week we're going to be talking about a pretty cool topic, I guess, and it's priests. Is that a cool topic? I don't see why it wouldn't be. It's not a hot topic. It's not lame. Is it? It's not lame. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> but, I mean, depends on what side you are on, you know, is mm. it a hot topic, I guess. Okay, okay. I'm not too offended by it, so. Okay, that's good. But probably others are, I guess, if you think about it. I guess we should define it, maybe. Yeah, so I guess, and I guess how we're going to roll through this today is kind of compare, maybe, I don't know, I think that's maybe where it's a hot topic. What's the difference between a priest and a pastor? Mm. A priest and a pastor. Okay. That could be one thing, but I think we should just start off with, what is what is, what, 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 what is a priest? What, what, what's he doing? What's that guy? What's that guy got going on? Yeah. You know, I think that is a a good way to start uh, because definitions are really important, right? You've heard of the the old Chinese proverb. They asked the Chinese sage if he had the power to make anything happen around the world, what would he do? And the sage responded, I would make words mean the same thing. What language? Every language. <laughs> There'd be no way to misconstrue what somebody means. Um what I mean, what is a priest? What do you think a priest is? I mean, you're going to ask me what's a, what is a, the difference between a priest and a pastor, and and as is usual, I'll answer scripturally, and then as the church has understood it, because that's the way to answer every question. What does the scripture say canonically, and how has the church understood it historically? Because if we deviate from those, well, then we're probably wrong. Uh, but let's go ahead. What do you, what do you think, Caleb? Well, I think a priest is someone who's probably in the well, I guess you could have priests of different things, but I guess in the way we're talking about uh, someone in the Catholic Church, and I would say someone, you know, they wear a collar. Usually you can spot them out pretty easy. Like okay. You, like that guy's a priest. Okay. Uh, they have different roles and responsibilities, kind of like a pastor, I would think. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of my general idea. And also, I guess you could throw in a little something, sprinkle a little apostolic succession on there, too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that that's one way to So to that's the that. sprinkle on top. That's not the ice well, that's, cream. That's that's to save me from, you know, other people trying to attack me. I need you to say it because if I say it people might be like, well, "I can't believe you believe well, that." Okay. Well, let's let's ask let's ask Adam then. I mean, what is the what's the difference between a priest and a pastor? I think the uh your your big difference is, is that a I look at it more pragmatically. Like what is functionally different? Um, I think when you look at it, a priest can do everything that a pastor can do. And we're talking more of, right, we say pastor, just to dis- give some distinction, is uh, usually someone leading a church, not so much uh, the gifting, because there's a lot of pastors that lead churches that are not pastorally gifted. And uh, I think that's, that is that is a distinction to make, but, you know, we're talking about people leading uh Churches or parishes, you know. Uh, however, so you're you're differentiating between charism and, and office. Role. Yeah, an office. Role, role. Okay, hundred percent. Okay, because I think there there is a difference. Because I've, I've I've been with pastors before that were great leaders, and they could one hundred they had they could direct and lead the church spiritually and organizationally, but they weren't pastoral. <laughs> like that wasn't their gifting. Uh, but yeah. they had a team. That was they had others in their church that were good at that. 
Like okay. that was definitely their gifting. Okay. Um, but I think when you start looking at functioning, you start you look at like uh, leading services. Um, you do even those men that weren't one hundred percent pastorally gifted, they would still visit people. They would do those things. Even you know, you start looking. You say, "Oh well, that might not be their job," but that's what they did. You start looking, especially. Um, what do mainstream evangelicals think? Oh, what does a pastor do? A lot of it is leading the service direction for the church. And I think you start looking, when you look at the priest, the priest can do everything that a pastor can do, the role of a pastor, except you you, you get other things there. So you start looking at uh, consecration. You start looking at the pronouncing of absolution. And, 100, and its intention uh, isn't, necessarily to be a pastor alone it is like caleb said he added as this the sprinkle on top <laughs> of a little it bit, you know. i wouldn't say it's necessarily <laughs> the sprinkle on top i would say it's a very large integral part and the intention is to do the, the source of that authority to do those things is, is from the the apostolic succession stepping into that um like that's they're intentional in that and that's where the understanding of what well, where where does that authority come from it okay. comes from from being um part of that that line but i think there's there's a few things there that they're that are more intentional in their role and their function okay, okay. i know a lot of that is like i'm comparing like the 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 two i'm saying the baseline for a priest is a pastor i would probably say not probably say 100 looking at church history really the baseline of a pastor is from functionally how priests right have, i was going to say you got so i'm, I'm comparing right. them backwards but because of um, contemporary like use. Contemporary use. Right. Right. Because I think most people kind of know who a pa- what a pastor is and to the point where it's like some guy stands up there and preaches a sermon. Yeah. You know, yeah. at least, or he runs the church. And, and you know, pa- yeah. And parts of uh, like Appalachian Anglican. So in many parts of Appalachia, um, preacher and pastor are synonymous. Yeah. Which even, I think, more so um, if, you, if you listen to this and you use the word, uh, oh yeah, the preacher at church. You know that this isn't, it, but and it it shows the well. That's the guy who gets up and preaches, and that's the end of that role functionally. Right. That says a lot about what you think that a pastor does or a leader Which, of a church does. Which in just common use, common use, especially in Appalachia, if you're using, if you're the kind of person who uses the word preacher to 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 define who's leading the congregation, then you are probably anti-clerical you reject the whole notion of a priest because he's probably boring right zero personality yeah yeah he has he has <laughs> there's nothing about him that's that's um there's no personal charisma right and so and then so and because he doesn't have any personal charisma in the way that he speaks or leads then you chalk up his leadership as dead religion and so you go to hear the preacher because at least he's exciting i think it's pretty fair I think that is. I mean, because I, I think that's definitely a term you have to bring preacher into the conversation, especially for our area. Because I hear a lot of people say, oh, yeah, the preacher. Or, you know, someone doesn't have a pastor, but someone's speaking on a regular basis. What do they say? Oh, they don't have a preacher right now. They right. <laughs> Like, hold right. up. Like, yeah. he is functionally, like, very discreet. Like, that guy who was preaching isn't your normal person. He's filling in. I'd say he's definitely, by your term and your definition, a, a preacher. I don't know. It gets a little fuzzy. The, uh, the derivative of pastor and preacher is coming from the priest. Yes. Yes. See, again, we want to turn it around. The question is not, why does your church have a priest? It's, why did yours decide not to? See, this, this, when are we answering the question from? 
Are we or like even the question itself? When is it arising? Not how or what, but when is the question arising, and when are we answering it? So if we look at canonical scripture in the history of the church, we can see that the concept of pastor and preacher is a derivative from the apostolic ministry itself. And the apostolic ministry is composed of three orders, right? Um, let, me, let me say this. If, if no one uh, or if anyone's listening to this, this episode and hasn't heard the episode on apostolic succession, I'd recommend they go listen to that because that's going to it's a direct precursor to this one in that sense. OK, there's only one church because there's only one god and the only there's only one way into that one church and that is through one baptism through baptism itself this is first corinthians 12 and ephesians 4 paul's very clear about this well because of this oneness of the church and the oneness because of god and the one faith and one lord one baptism there's only one apostolic ministry and that one ministry is composed of three orders bishops priests and deacons and so what we're looking at this morning is what is a priest? What is a priest? Well, this is where it starts to get difficult for some people because they'll say, well, the priests were just Old Testament. That's all gone. No, that is a, that is a to use the words of a, a famous uh, pastor uh, a few years ago, that is unhitching the Old Testament from the New and relegating the Old Testament into something that doesn't apply. And that is not how we read the Bible. We read the Old Testament as God's direct acts in history, creating and forming a nation. And that nation is the means by which he is going to bring forth the man, Christ Jesus, who will redeem creation. Okay, In that creation of Israel and all of the ceremony and law and monarchy and everything that God creates with that nation are the principles, not just the particulars, but the principles that Jesus fulfills and then gives to the church or gives as the church, right? And priesthood is one of those principal themes and elements that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. So the creation of Adam and being set in the garden, the Genesis accounts in 1 and 2 reveal that God creates the world in the same way that he will command Israel to create the temple. And in the Holy of Holies is the, the Ark of the Covenant, because in ancient temples, what was in that holiest place but the idol? That's where the image of the God was, of the deity. And so we see that the Garden of Eden is the Holy of Holies, and in it he has put his image, the man, humanity itself. Okay? Well, priesthood begins right then. Right there. Right when? Right then. See what I mean? So Adam is the image of God, reflecting God to creation and creation back to God. He's got a priestly function already. And when you move forward into the law of Moses and God creates the Levites, right? There's the tribe of Levi and he takes these Levites to create, creating them as a, as a tribe, but then giving that tribe a very particular sacerdotal or priestly function within the nation of Israel. So only the Levites are permitted to touch and handle the holy things. That's a parallel to the deacons, and we, when we talk to deacons, we'll, we'll talk about deacons, we'll talk about that. But within the Levites are the sons of Aaron, and they become these Lev Levitical priests who are responsible for offering sacrifices. Well, yes, Jesus fulfilled that, but when you compare the Levitical priests to Adam's role in the garden, 
Moses uses the same words. The Pentateuch uses the same words for work and worship. So the way that Adam was to work the garden and the Levites worship in the uh, tabernacle, it's the same word. Okay? So you get this, the, the layering here of what's going on. Well, Christ fulfills that. He fulfills Adam and the garden. He fulfills the temple. He fulfills the Levites. He fulfills all these old covenant concepts of priesthood. And Hebrews goes at great lengths to point this out and also to tell us that Jesus fulfills not just that, but he is in the succession, the lineage of Melchizedek, who had neither father nor mother and stands as a priest forever. So the first Eucharist that we see as a type and shadow in the Old Testament is when Melchizedek gives Abraham what? bread and wine. And Abraham then tithes to Melchizedek. So right here with Abraham himself and Melchizedek, and he's the king of what? Salem, Jerusalem. So Melchizedek is the king of peace, without father or mother, bread and wine, receiving tithes. And he's a king. So here's the priest king, and all of these things associated with him, like the Eucharist, in connection with this with Abraham and redemption. Right there's the type and shadow that's going to carry everything through the Old Covenant that Jesus will directly and immediately fulfill. So what you're telling me is that we should keep having priests, I guess, instead of having just stopping it? I'm or- saying that the priesthood is so intricately bound to what it is to be human, we cannot exist without it. You're either going to pervert it or negate it. And if you go to negate it, then you're going to, you're, what it means to be human is going to collapse in that culture over time. It's not, it's not something that happens in a day, but over the course of time, the, the concept and appreciation for the image of God in other people lessens when the, when the priesthood isn't present and when it isn't healthy. If it's, if it's, if you have it, but it's not healthy, well, then you got a whole nother set of problems. But if the priesthood is present and it's health, healthy, it's operating healthily, then the church is going to care for the poor because you see the image of Christ in the image of the priest and in, in the person of the priest, right? And when he is celebrating at the Eucharist, you're recognizing the image of God in your neighbor. So you're, you're discerning the body and blood of Christ in the church. And therefore, then you go out and you serve other people. Because all humanity is made in the image of God, whether it's part of the body of Christ or not. So you can't exist without priesthood. I mean, you've got, you got more extension to that, right? I mean, you've got um, layers and nuance here. I mean, we mentioned the Levites. We mentioned Aaron's sons. Well, Israel itself, she is a royal priesthood, Exodus 19. That's the parallel to the church, by the way. Um, here is a nation of royal priests And amongst that nation or within that nation, God has an an entirely ordained classification of circumcised Israelites whose responsibility is to oversee and moderate worship, the offering of sacrifices, and then to instruct the people on the meaning of those sacrifices. Malachi 2 talks about that with the priests. Well, that's what you get in the New Testament. The New Testament is the fulfillment of that, and then that's given to us so that we have, as Peter says, to us Gentiles who have come into, to the, into Christ by baptism, and there's the fulfillment, right? You are a royal priesthood. So the whole church shares in the one priesthood of Jesus. But within that royal priesthood of the church, there is a distinct group of ordained people who stand representing Christ to the people and then leading the people in their priestly service. 
So think about even in the Eucharist, you know, when the, the priest is um, celebrating and he says, we offer this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, you know, that's what he says, we, when he's speaking to God, he said, we offer to you the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And he's doing that with his hands extended over the elements of, of bread and wine. The consecration hasn't happened yet, uh, but it's get, we're getting there. Well, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's happened. The consecration's happened. So you've got that going on in the Eucharist. But he says, we, meaning he's leading the body in her priestly role, right? Representing Christ in the church, right? Um, that's what the word apostle, where that comes from. So a, a big thing I, I hear, um, and you hit on it a little bit there, is, um, well, I don't need a priest because I'm a priest. We're all priests. All believers are priests. That's part of what uh, Christ's work on the cross was, was making it so um, I don't need anybody else. I can go to the cross. I can right. go to Jesus all by myself. Right. That reflects very poor reading of Scripture. So what happened in the Old Covenant when the Israelites were, were going to not even offer sacrifice, but what happens to Uzzah, who's not a priest or Levite, when he reaches out to steady the ark because it's not being moved properly? With good intentions. He's sincere. What happens to Uzzah when he reaches out to steady the ark? Dead. Pretty shocking. Yeah. yeah. And David's furious. David's mad about it. God, I can't believe you killed this guy. He broke the law. And the scripture is very keen to emphasize, we're not, we're not under the law, we're under grace. So we have a stricter judgment. It's another, it's another misreading of the Bible. The grace transforms us to obey God, not excuse us in our disobedience. So in the old covenant, there's a priestly nation, but they clearly still need a priesthood. So Israel is a priest amongst the nations to nations, but within Israel there is a priesthood, right? These sons of Aaron and amongst these Levites. In the church, Jesus doesn't give blanket authority to every member. Not every member has the same authority in the church. We see that even with like the spiritual gifts, right? Prophecy is not healing. Healing isn't administration. These things aren't the same. He washes the apostles' feet in John 13, and it's recalling the book of Exodus when the priests have to wash their hands and their feet before they can offer sacrifice. And you see even that dialogue, that exchange between Jesus and Peter, right? And he says, the Lord says, you'll understand later, you know, and he's like, no, my hands, my, my head, my feet, everything. He's like, no, 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 no. You've been baptized. You've been brought into the covenant. You only need to wash your feet, right? So you get this whole dialogue and Christ is setting them up as new covenant priests, which we see even more so on the first Sunday of Easter, right? The resurrection Sunday in John 20. He breathes on them, says, receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. There's that apostolic, that go, right? You're supposed to go and do what? Forgive sins. So you've been given authority to go and forgive sins or not to forgive sins. We talked about this with bishops. Well, what are priests but those people, those elders, and we'll talk about that too, I guess, those elders who share in that apostolic ministry with bishops. And that's the priestly work in the New Testament. So the, the church member, the person who's a part of the body, cannot absolve sin. They can't do it. They don't have that authority from Christ. The bishops have that authority, and the bishops give that authority to priests or to, to elders. It, like, for example, you know, we talk about the Old Testament priests, right, in the Old Testament. Old Testament priests in the Old Testament? Yeah. Okay. 
Um, <laughs> we also got elders, a whole other classification of people, elders. In the era of the New Testament, like with the rise of the synagogue system in the, between the, the covenants, right, after the exile, yeah, when they the diaspora, the Jews go out amongst the Greeks, and they have their synagogues, and there are huge Jewish populations in like Alexandria, Egypt, Antioch. They basically have arranged themselves so that all of the synagogues, like the Jewish quarter of the cities, right, they have their own version of a Sanhedrin. But that Sanhedrin, that council is submitted to the one in Jerusalem. And messages will go from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to these other places so they're all living in continuity with each other. When the apostles go out in the book of Acts, and Paul talks about this to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, it's to those places that they're going. Those synagogues aren't like parish churches. I mean, these are much more, um, there's a must, they're more robust. There's more organization to them, right? And the director, the leader for that group, Chosenim, was an elder, old graybeard, an elder. Well, the Hebrew word for that is presbyter, presbytros. And so you've got one guy who's, appointed to the laying on of hands he's not or it's like a lay ordination because he's not a priest like a Levit levitical priest who's offering sacrifices but he's overseeing the community and he's got a group of people that are helping him oversee the community and they're responsible for prayer and cate and you know uh, catechesis the singing of the psalms the food laws all of this stuff the apostles go to those synagogues that's where they go and if the elder converts and the synagogue converts and it's brought into the church but as we see often in the book of Acts, Paul has to take the ones who are converting out of that and create a different structure. But the structure looks just like what they came out of. And that guy that's in charge of it, that elder, is a priest. He becomes the new covenant priest. The apostles are sharing the authority they've received with that director, that priest. So you see the word presbyter, elder, and then in English we use pres presbyter becomes priest from Greek into the all the way through, you know, historical development there. And we retain the word priest because we recognize that the presbyters that the New Testament talks about, the elders, are part of that apostolic ministry, and they share in the New Testament priesthood that Jesus gave to the apostles. So there is no, like the church is operating in the priesthood of Christ, that one priesthood, but within that there is a distinct Distinct ministry composed of three orders, bishops, priests, and deacons. And I think that's pretty good to point out because when you, of course, when we do all of this, we're not trying to change something and make something new. We're trying to replicate what, how things have been done always, you know? Yes. And so it's good to look at that and see even the roles that was happening. I remember even like when I was younger, I used to view uh, things differently. Obviously, they're talking okay. about because I would view, like, say, for example, when Christ died, that's when the veil was, like, torn. Right. So that'd be symbolic of, you no longer have to do these things. But obviously, you don't see that anymore, because you see even later on, the apostles are doing the exact same thing. Like, they're continuing on in this way. It's a little change. It's different, but it's not different solely, like, wholly, at least. It's th So we want to look for principles like this. Where, where's the continuity, and where's the discontinuity? So new covenant priests are not Levites. Right. Right. They are part of the ministry of Jesus that's sharing with Melchizedek's priesthood. So for for many deacons, when they're being consecrated priests, you know, they'll put um, the passage from Hebrews. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, because that that 
deacon that's being made a priest is now sharing in the ministry of Christ in a very particular way that he wasn't before. So much so that the bishop anoints the hands of the person being made a priest so that whatever the hands bless become blessed. Well, there's a very specific application for that right away in that, that consecration with chrism. What, what, what are the hands going to bless that give the assurance and the efficacy and validity of what's going on, but the bread and the wine. So that priest is blessing bread and wine, and it becomes the body and blood of Christ. Now, there's there's further extension out to the laying on of hands for the anointing of the sick, for all the sacramental purposes and rites that are going on with, with the priest's hands. But there's a think about it like this. Ceremony, if, if things don't have meaning, like if, if the ceremony doesn't really do and convey what's going on, why have it? If there's no actual consecration of the priest's hands, but it's just bare symbol, then what are we doing? It's a waste of time. But if indeed the thing being signified through the anointing of the hands is a true impartation of authority and blessing, then ought we not to reverence that? It's still the case in many traditions that after after a priest is, is made a priest, after he's consecrated, many people walk up and they'll kiss the hands. They'll kiss the hands of the person that's newly ordained because there's the statement that we recognize that these are the hands that will make for us the body and blood of Christ. And I think all that, I think that really gives the, well, a good strong case for why they're priests, I'd say, over just, I don't want to say like that, just a pastor, but why there kind of is that strong difference, especially the way you view that. Because I don't think a pastor would usually view themselves in that role like a priest would. Contemporary uses of, of pastor, uh, just about like everything else in the modern world, is really reductionistic. It's really reductionistic. So you do have the pastoral qualities, but very often, you know, like what Adam was saying about the way a pastor operates, you know, uh, like the gentleness and compassion. I mean, I would refer to Romans 12, to the gifts of hospitality and service and say, here's here's more what people mean by pastor, whereas in the Ephesians 4 text, where Paul says, uh, Christ gave some of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, uh, the English Standard Version does, I think, a pretty good job of rendering poimen, which is pastor, as shepherd, which is mm-hmm. it is, because shepherd doesn't mean, it doesn't immediately denote gentleness. It just means oversight. You're, you're responsible for caring for a flock. And when you when you take a, a step back and don't assign to pastor particular um, graces, like you see in Romans 12, like I just mentioned, but the principle of oversight itself over a localized group of people, now go back and read Genesis through Malachi, and you're going to see pastors, shepherds everywhere, whether that's literal sheep, you know, with Jacob, yeah. <laughs> right? Or you see the term used by the prophets for the kings, the kings who are overseeing the people. They're called shepherds, especially in Ezekiel 34 when God rebukes them with the severity that is quite frightening. And I think uh, you kind of talked about it during um, you know your inter- intertestamental period. Um, the new covenant coming in Jesus, like the New Testament church took the form that was there, yeah. but it was very insufficient because you even talked about they were just pretty much essentially lay people even though they had authority right um but they weren't priests right and really if you look at it what happens is um be, because of the the decentralization of just the that very nature of even though everything comes from 
from Israel and what is happening there, um, now you start to see bishops over these cities. So they're not operating in form, but they have power to, to operate and to do what needs to be done. They're not like just a representative of what is happening in, you know, uh, in Jerusalem. Right. They are real, tangible power, what is happening. I think that's really, um, if you look at, if you look at that time as something that's actually significant, it's not just the falling apart right. of a group of people during a um, during their exile. But if you look at it as the actual um, establishment of what will happen, it completely changes things. And really, the, the deacons, priests, and bishops are really what when they fit into that system and yeah. what has already happened, it empowers it. And it's why I think it, one of the reasons it spreads so quickly is because it, it's a system that was clearly being laid out because the new covenant was giving it the power and the people actually had power and authority given by Jesus himself yeah. to really fit into that system and say, this is how we're going to do it. This works. It's just missing a component. Yeah. But the new covenant is that new component that makes it happen. Yeah. So we end up going from, you know, the diaspora, you know, Moses being read everywhere. The Bible talks about that across the, across the empire. And now the gospel comes in to show it's the fulfillment of that. And the, and the priests become the, um, they're not bishops, but they're very, very similar. So if you, even if you open our prayer book and you read through the ordination of a, of a priest and then, you know, the consecration of the ordination of a bishop, uh, you will discover massive similarity except the bishop is raised up above his brothers so he's leading the priests but the principle of priestliness of priesthood and eldership are retained but now he's the first amongst equals and he's it's not just he's first amongst equals i mean we have some some anglicans who, who view the pre, view view bishops as the first among equals but there is a difference of order and we have a we have a good distinction of that in the Anglican history and our, our understanding, um, but you see a significant amount of overlap. I mean, and you can go. They go back to Jerome, the guys that argue that kind of go that route because Jerome talks about bishops and priests or bishops and, and presbyters essentially being the same, except one is raised up to lead the group. Well, that's that's part of it, but there's more that's going on. But think about the the authority that Christ gives to the elders. You know what they have in the Old Testament, and what how Jesus takes that and gives it to the apostles, and the apostles then share that with those that they appoint to be bishops and those that they appoint to be elders. That distinction, by the way, because here's the other argument against priests, is that, um, or I should say, against the threefold order of bishops, priests, and deacons, is that that's not in the New Testament. That the the priest or the elder and the bishop are the same office. Yes and no you have a significant amount of overlap because the apostles are still present at the writing of the New Testament letters for the majority of them. But you see through the tra uh, trajectory within the book of Acts, the apostles are appointing elders. We see that in chapter 13 and 14. And that goes back to what I mentioned about, you know, with Paul and the Chosenim and these guys becoming uh, elders in their area. And Paul saying to Titus, appoint elders in every city and villages there he says this in titus 1 he says i left you in crete to do this well now wait a second what is titus then is he what is he well he's paul's immediate representative and as paul's immediate representative he's acting on paul's behalf to appoint elders and deacons 
And then we see the same thing with Timothy in Ephesus, where Timothy is reconstituting, he's reorganizing the Ephesian church because it's, it's, it's fallen to pieces. Acts 20 gives us that indicator that things have, have become so influenced by false doctrine, Timothy has to go, go and reform it. He's got he's to put it back together. And Timothy is appointing bishops. He uses that word. Paul uses it in 1 Timothy. If any man desires to be a bishop, he desires a good thing, meaning overseer. Why? What? Where's the? Where's this threefold order become visibly clear? Then why? Why? Why be so emphatic about it? Well, J. B. Lightfoot, who's an Anglican bishop in the 1800s, does an excellent job of this, and talks about between that era with Paul and the latter part, the middle middle 60s, early to mid 60s, to the mid 90s, there's a there's a shift in the church, and it's as clear as can be to anybody who looks at the history. And Lightfoot says it's because of the Apostle John. What? It's because of the Apostle John. So we know from all the historical references, he lives into the 90s. He lives the longest. He lives in Ephesus, um, and that he's in touch with all of the churches. And so that distinct threefold order of bishop, priest, and deacon, and what they're doing in the church that we see Ignatius driving home in Antioch, where's the linchpin here? And it's got to come from John, because there's no way the whole church would have adopted a model that didn't have apostolic origins behind it. So in the old in the new testament do you see the word bishop and elder can they be interchangeable yeah they can be but do you also see the distinction yeah you see the distinction which becomes very clear um if you go for a later date for the book of revelation like 96 95 ad super clear because the angel of the to the church of whatever that church is that angel would have been the bishop and that's that i can't get into the interpretation of the revelation but you see that there and Ignatius on down the line. So you've got that that emphasis. And these priests, the these presbyters, the elders, what very, very important, influential, authoritative figures who join with the apostles in their decision making in Acts 15. They can shut you out of the church, they can withhold the Eucharist from you, they can decide not to absolve you of your sins. They're responsible for teaching and, and preaching the word of God. They're responsible um you know, for evangelistic work. I mean, all of these things is going on with the priesthood. It's all of that's preserved in our, our ordinal, you know, the means by which somebody's made a priest and the gravity of it is all there too. I think it's the kind of thing that merits more reflection by folks who just want to outright dismiss it. I mean, you, you can really see just over the scope of uh, Anglicanism. I mean, you can see that is a constant battle between how Protestant can we be or in you know how say Romish can we be really is like you know it's kind of like that the the conversation that's happening there the answer is saying oh we're gonna go back to the, what is ancient the, the ancient traditions what has always been but you see that it's still happening and you look at the American influence and that is the overflow of the Protestant side of things uh, America very influenced by by that. Yeah, a very particular kind of Protestantism, because the magisterial Protestants were like the Orthodox churches in their protestations against the Bishop of Rome. So, I mean, Anglicanism is thoroughly Catholic, right? But it's also thoroughly Protestant in the sense that the Bishop of Rome has no jurisdiction in these realms, meaning there is a Bishop of Rome, but he's not the one who's calling the shots here, telling our bishops what to do. There should be mutual recognition and respect, and I think Anglicanism as a whole has done a pretty good job of that. Um, 
of course, I mean, the Pope Francis and Archbishop Welby and Canterbury, you know, they're buddies. You know, they're all to, they're always together with photos, blessing each other and praying for each other. But even then, we aren't under the jurisdiction of Canterbury. We're under Archbishop Foley Beach and then particularly under our own local bishop and where we have in our diocese. So there's that principle of subsidiarity with an Anglicanism. And we see it in the articles, the Church of Ephesus, the Church of Jerusalem, the Church of Rome, right? And then the Church England being classified as its as a, as a distinct region. So we have a distinct regional component to what it is to be where we are now with our own bishop. And that bishop is an apostolic succession, right? The priesthood, in the same way, it's like the word police. We could talk about a police officer, but police can be either you know, singular or plural, there's the police or there's the police. One, like you, you see what I mean? The priesthood's the same way. There's only one order of priesthood. So a priest in one place is a priest in every place. If that's not the case, then we're not talking about the priesthood. We're talking about something else. Like with the, with a bishop, bishop, some place is a bishop, every place or in one place in every place. And so we see this with the priesthood um, and the diaconate because there's only one. There's only one order in that sense, one order of ministry or one kind of ministry with three orders. So, I mean, I, you know, it does us good to chew on these things, reflect on these things, and to recognize that the very Protestant uh, free church evangelical approach to pastors, while we want to affirm those particular charisms, that is the, the collapse of the preservation of canonical scriptural teaching as the church has understood in history. So, I mean, I think that that really hits on the, like we, I talked about the balance between the two of Anglicanism. It's like Protestant versus like Catholic, like Catholic, like the, like, are we Catholic and part of, um, the church? Um, and like you, we kind of hit on like the, the one side of it of, um, Protestant, the, the distinction between, you know, priest from that side of things. The other side of things is, are Anglican priests truly Catholic priests? Are we talking about the same thing? Yes. Anglican priests are Catholic priests. Properly, historically speaking, if someone says, are, are you a priest? Like they ask me, are you a priest? I say yes, in the Anglican tradition. In the same way that, you know, if someone says to a Roman Catholic priest, are you a priest? Yes. And he'll say, yes, I'm a Catholic priest. Well, I mean, Anglicans and the Orthodox could just as easily say, yes, we're Catholic priests because we're all part of the one historic, visible, you know, Christ, one holy Catholic and apostolic church in the words of the creed. But the patrimony, the source, the tradition that we have been ordained in is distinct in the same way that we would make a distinction between Jerusalem and Ephesus and Constantinople and Rome etc. Those are historic sites. Well, today we could use those as a reference point, even though that we've not been ordained in any one of those traditions. Anglican is referring, as we've talked about in the past, to that particular history of the church that's come out of the British Isles. The apostolic succession for the Anglican communion goes back to the first century. You can trace it back that far. The difference is there's no major cities that become a giant C-S-E-E for the historic church until Canterbury, 
with Augustine in 596-97. But you've got bishops in England well before that. So you've got a couple bishops at the Council of Arles, and that's in 318, I believe. Right. So they're present. And then you've got Tertullian, um, Hippolytus, and many others in the early church writing about the church in Britain. So, I mean, it, it's there. Uh, our orders go back that far. So it's just as old, just as ancient, just as, as um, worthy of respect and, and adoration. It's fully, thoroughly Catholic, but Protestant, not in the sense that we're denying any of the Catholic distinctive, like the creeds, the canon, the one ministry. Matter of fact, one of the claims and arguments of Anglicanism is that we don't. We don't have our own ministry. We don't change it. If you change the ministry, then you're changing the gospel. See, all of these things are interrelated with each other. If you change the practice of the church, you're changing the doctrine of the church. If you change the doctrine of the church, you'll change the practice of the church. Just look at marriage. We've talked about that, right? If you change what marriage is, you're changing something about doctrine because Paul ties them together. You know, as the law, God gave the law, here's these 613 commands. Some of them are about what you do at the tabernacle. Some of them are about governance, and some of them are about your personal behavior. So the, God, the, the law impacts worship, which then, like a giant circle, reaches out and encompasses the rest of your personal life, but then your nation's life. Well, I mean, what does Peter say that we are? He uses the word ethne for the church. Ethne like an ethnic group, like a nation. He says, you are a royal, you're a nation. The church is a distinct people in the whole world. And the gospel affects our worship, our individual lives, but it's all encompassing for the church universal. So a bishop in one place is a bishop in every place. A priest in one place is a priest in every place. They don't have the jurisdiction that they have in their places where they're they're leading, but wherever they go, they are that charism. They are that that extension of Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood, if you will, where they are, wherever they are, wherever they're at. So fully, robustly, entirely Catholic, but then protesting certain points that the Bishop of Rome makes about himself. Not so that we can be argumentative, but so that we can hold to what we have received from our ancestors. And it's like you said, Caleb, we're not we're not tasked with innovating. If we innovate, then we're going to deviate. And if we deviate, we're going to change the doctrine. And we're, if we change the doctrine, we put our souls and the people who are following us in danger. Because that's what Paul tells Timothy. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. In so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. So if we deviate, if we innovate, then we're making that a, a very real possibility instead of holding to the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints. And that's one of the functions of the priest, by the way, is to make sure that we're not deviating. It's one thing to take the whole gospel, the historic faith, and apply it to a variety of contexts. It's quite another to take those contexts and then redefine the truth of the gospel. And it's in a subtle, insidious error that happens too often today, under the banner of being led by the Holy Spirit, or relevant. So I, I think as much as... England, like the Anglican Church, yeah, or the church, the Church of England. However, you know, you want to. Uh, we were talking about over a large time period, like really since the beginning, the Church in England, how yeah. it's developed, and it's uh, it's the validity of its priesthood. Has that always been something that has been um, agreed upon by, let's say, uh, the East or Rome? 
No. Or has there been conflict there? Yeah. So after the Reformation, uh, you get a couple centuries of unsteadiness between, and that's to put it mildly, between Rome <laughs> and uh, yeah. and the, the people of England, the Church of England. So then 1896, Pope Leo XIII issued a papal bull where he said that Anglican orders, and I quote, are absolutely null and utterly void. So according to the official stance of the Bishop of Rome, we are basically pretending to be priests. Didn't say we weren't Christians, just said that we're pretending to be bishops and priests and deacons. We do not have an apostolic ministry. And his argument is one of the words that you like the most, intent, to summarize Leo's point. It's important. Eh? Yeah, set right. out to do something yeah, on purpose. Right. Come on. Like, that's, you yeah. know. Leo says you don't intend to make a priest because that's not the word that was used in your prayer book in the 1500s. You didn't use the word priest when you consecrated and you didn't say these particular words. Well, you can imagine that created quite a, a ruckus. It did. <laughs> you, you, well, in part, you had some who were like, who cares what he has to say, right? He has no jurisdiction in this realm. You had, you had that response. But then you, you get a, re a really good measured response from the archbishops of Canterbury and York two years later in 1898. And they write the response both in Latin and in English, lest there be any confusion. Right. And they, they, they argue that, um, rightly so, they argue that if you use Leo's scalpel against the Roman liturgies, then he's not valid either. Right. Because the form and order by which Rome made its own priests has varied over time in history and hasn't been consistent. Then they also argue, we do intend to make a priest who offers sacrifice. And the word priest is retained. It's in the ordinal and it's in the prayer book. So a, a variation here or there doesn't negate, because we've talked about form and, and matter, right? The, the, the variation, minor variations are not a big deal. They don't, they don't invalidate something that's going on. It's where Christ has been emphatic about what ought to be. If you, if you vary that, then it gets cloudy and murky, right? Then you can call things into question. And the response there in Sapius Officio in 1898 is that, no, our form is patristic. It is biblical, and we are emphasizing that the, we are making priests. And so that they use the word priest instead of minister in certain places, because minister doesn't have to mean priest, but priest always includes minister, like pastor, right? It's a similar notion. So calling somebody a pastor doesn't mean that you're recognizing that they're a priest, but priests ought to be pastors in the sense of you know, overseeing and leading churches. Now, you have secular priests, quote, quote, guys who are like administrators and clerks and that kind of, you, you got that. I'm not, but we're not talking about the, those kinds of variations so much uh, right now. But they respond to say, no, this is settled. It's been settled. Our prayer book's clear. Um, and then after that happened in, in 1898, you had the church in England go to the, some of the other Orthodox bodies. So uh, between 1920 and I think like 1933, there's quite a number of the Orthodox churches who affirm the validity of Anglican orders and, and, and distinction from Rome, right? Then you also get the, um, the old Catholics, the old line Catholics. So after Vatican I in the 1870s, this is when the, uh, Rome decided to emphasize and require belief in the infallibility of the papacy. It wasn't until the latter part of the 1800s. You could speak ex-cathedra and this kind of stuff. Well, 
to speak ex cathedra is just to speak from your chair as a bishop, but they said his statements were infallible. Well, you got a whole group of, of Roman Catholics who broke away from Rome when that happened. They said, that's not true. We don't believe that. Well, those fellows started to participate. They call it the Dutch touch. Those fellows started, <laughs> started to participate in the consecration of Anglican bishops to take away the accusation from Leo XIII, or, or the, pull, the statement, the declaration from Leo XIII, that these are these are nullified because once because as we've said the apostolic succession for bishops isn't a line even though we trace it that way as much as it is a net it's a net so they started to participate in those consecrations and ordinations and i want to say since the 1960s at least um leo the 13th's declaration has been called into question multiple times by other later popes and by cardinals that that that's kind of out for argument um but I do think, and this is this is you know this would be an entirely another episode. I think Leo is bringing up a good point mm-hmm. when he's talking about intent, because if you do not maintain the rudimentary necessity for form, and if you change the matter, you're not making a priest or a bishop or a deacon. You're making a minister of the of the gospel. Those are very different things, and that's how we would look at other denominations and other Protestant bodies that argue against the priesthood even though they have, quote, quote, an ordained ministry. What do they mean? And there's no way to answer that, because when you're talking about the, the, the thousands upon thousands of organizations, I'll just say it this way, to be ordained, quote, quote, by an organization doesn't make you valid in the sight of heaven. It doesn't make you an actual bishop, priest, or deacon, even if that's the term you're using, because what is the intent, what is the form, what is the matter? Same thing can be said, you know, in, in the apostolic succession, can you take, you know, a seven-year-old child or a five-year-old child and make the child a priest? You see what I mean? So you've got, there, there's a certain level of um, necessity here that has to be in place to discuss validity. Uh, those are things to, to, to really reflect on. I mean, the bishop and then the priest, by extension, sharing with him in this apostolic ministry, stands uh, in the person of Christ. Now, people, they don't like that phrase either. Some Anglicans don't like it. Vatican, the Second Vatican Council used that phrase, in persona Christi, to describe this, which is very recent. But the principle that they're describing is true. And that's what, and the principle they're describing is uh, sheliach in the Hebrew or apostolos in the Greek. So the, the they taught, the rabbis taught, as a man's sheliach, so is the man, right? Sheliak being his his apostle, his the person he's sending, his ambassador, his representative. The, a man, like a king, like David, who sends his Sheliak, his messengers, his ambassadors. You, The way you treat that ambassador is the way you treat the king. That's all through the Gospels when Jesus sends out the apostles. If they receive you, they receive me. me. And if they receive me, they receive the one who sent me. That's, that's apostolic work. So in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul excommunicates this unrepentant man, well, in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, reconcile him. He says, I've already done it. Uh, and the Greek there is uh, prosopon Christos. And prosopon Christos. Prosopon is a, a Greek word, prosopon, is, um, it's got a shade of meaning, right, in this era. Before the New Testament, it, the term really is referring to like a mask that an actor would wear. You're playing the role. 
you're playing some the, the, a character like think you know think of like Shakespeare or something else you know you like uh, you don't confuse the guy on TV who's playing um, what, what's something popular who's playing Spider-Man like Tom who is it it's Tom Holland right you know this Caleb I think he's still in I don't he might be he might be now. he's he's the new guy to play Spider-Man but is Tom Holland Peter Parker now, Peter Parker is a character so the actor plays the role the word prosopone was similar to that. Later on in church history, prosopone becomes identical with the concept of person, persona, right? Person. So it's the, it's the identity. Well, Paul's writing, and he just happens to be in that era where it's a bleed over of meaning. So when he says he's standing in the person of Christ, he's either meaning I'm standing here acting as Jesus would act because I'm uh, his representative, or he's referring to an ontology, meaning as a Apostle, I stand in a particular relationship to Christ for the sake of the church. Either one of those is correct. And so the bishops and the priests stand in that apostolic ministry representing Jesus of Nazareth, not Susie from Chicago, not like um, an artificial intelligence. I think that's going to be one of the big problems in the coming decades, by the way. I think there's going to be artificial intelligence priests. And we're going to have to have this argument in the church, like, can an artificial intelligence be a bishop and a priest? Can I get resolu- Can I get forgiven of my sins? Right. Can, can you go get absolved from an AI? Yeah. Because if you really mean it, why can't you just like, and, and that, you know, the AI is programmed to hear the sincerity in your voice and then just pronounce the absolution. What's the difference? See, we're going to have that debate. It's going to happen. Or it denies you because it doesn't think your voice is sincere. Enough. Right, oh, right. No. <laughs> you know, you, you did. You're not, you don't mean it. I mean, it, that sounds goofy, guys, but I, I think that's going to be one of the debates that comes up because this is what's happening. People are going to, it's, it's, the, it's the, the further degeneration of the culture. So we have to adhere to the canonical teaching of Scripture and the way the church has understood these things and, and avoid these other errors. Um so there's the priest along with the bishop and the deacons, for that matter, as representing Christ in his service, um, leading the church within the church to the church so the church can be the priestly people of God in the world. Well, I think that's pretty good, especially because uh, even I was going to ask more of like, and I guess we can hit on a little more, like what are the specific like roles of a priest? Like what would a priest be doing? Well, I mean, in the ordinal, the priest is called to be a steward and a watchman. Um, you know, who is teaching, right? And then that's what he's supposed to do when it comes to protecting the church. And he has a specific ministry of word and sacrament to teach the word of God, to catechize. Uh, Canons of 1604 in the Church of England said that every Lord's Day, every Sunday, the priest was supposed to teach from the catechism. Sunday school, right? Um, So, I mean, he's a messenger, he's a watchman, he's a steward, meaning he has received the gospel, he does not change it. Teach uh, right here from, I'm just going to look at the ordinal here for a second, 489 in the new prayer book. Uh, To teach, to warn, to feed, to provide for the Lord's family, to seek Christ's sheep who are in the midst of the fallen world, that they may be saved. That's that's what the priest is supposed to be doing. That's his ministry, like that's what he does for the church, right? And then personally, he's supposed to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures, to consistently chew and meditate and study the Bible so that he's rightly teaching the Word of God to the people. Did you know, this is years ago now, they, they pulled America. When you think of a holy man, what comes to mind? I don't know if the stats have changed too much, but let's think about it like this. If you were to, you guys, right now, when you think of when the phrase holy man is used, what do you think most Americans think of? 
I already know the answer to this one, so I'm gonna step out. I have no idea because it's it could be so crazy. I don't... I'll say when I first thought about it, when I was that's what I was thinking. I thought it was a priest, someone who'd be in a collar. I mean, it was either it's either a priest, but it's like someone that like maybe like a like a monk or like something like that. When most Americans hear the phrase "holy man," they think of Hindu monks. Yeah, Hindu monks. Because they're dressed differently, and they carry themselves differently, and they act differently. And when they were polled about pastors, what comes to mind when you think of pastors? Oh, just a bunch of people in suits. Like a businessman. Okay, what do you think? When, what year was this done? This this would have been done early 2000s. <laughs> There's a lot that could I mean, I would say probably more of the, uh, at that point, some failings. I mean, it was still very... some. That CEOs, was... CEOs, what Caleb hit on. Huh. Pastors were were thought about in terms of people who lead organizations with their power suits and their ties. CEOs. I think that may have changed today because most pastors now, it's ripped jeans and muscle t-shirts. Yeah, skinny jeans, I, I think. Yeah. There were some That's not right, then. guys. That's, <laughs> that, that, is, that is the exact wrong image we want to come to mind when we think about the ministry in the church. This is Christ's ministry. The irony is the the symbol of the collar and where it comes from. Yeah. It's literally the exact opposite of like of that the tie. Is, yes, right. of the tie. Like one hundred percent. For those that don't know, the collar is called a reverse collar because in the early eighteen hundreds, um, the businessmen were wearing ties to reflect their prowess and their power at making money. And because of the way they were manipulating the poor, many of the clergy started with the Presbyterians, then it went for the Anglican clergy before Rome picked it up. They took their collars and they flipped them around to protest, to stand against the manipulation of the poor, and amongst some other things. And so for a long time, and still today, especially in areas that are, have a little bit more Christian memory associated with them, it's a symbol of being in orders. So you've got Methodists and Lutherans and many other denominational leaders who will, who will do that now. Um, even so, that picture of a Hindu monk, right, being the concept, concept of a holy person but not our Christian leaders, that ought to grieve us because that's not what Jesus has in mind. I think especially when you want to have the differences of if you want to do it like that, difference between like a priest or a pastor like what do you have to do to actually become a priest what's the process in that so a priest is is uh, a man who's ordained by a bishop no, he doesn't have to do anything else well i mean he's he's, <laughs> he's uh, the canons vary like the rules vary based upon, from diocese to diocese okay but usually there's a, a multi-year period of formation beforehand where the person is prayed over studied given opportunities to serve to show that they're actually called by God. See, if a bishop lays his hands on you and makes you a priest, you may have a, a measure of authority in the church, but it doesn't mean you've got the actual practical skills yet. Okay. So part of the formation is developing those practical skills in concurrence with the call of God, the gift of God, so that you receive the laying on of hands. Because bishops, priests, and deacons are spiritual gifts. These, these are works of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit doesn't do it, nothing's happened. We're just pretending. Right, but the Holy Spirit is is working when all these other things we talk about ad infinitum. It feels like sometimes are maintained. So you you've got process of theological education. A lot of dioceses, but not all, require some kind of master's degree, something equivalent to that. Um, 
because you got to know the Bible. Like you have to know the scripture and you have to know doctrine. You have to know the history of the church. There are things that you have to be aware of to rightly discern the word of God and not to give away to every fad that's going on around you. Right. And as I've already mentioned, you've got the, the formation process on um, how to do how to do the work of ministry. Like, can you read the Bible publicly? Can you speak publicly? Can you disciple people? Can you um, exhibit the charism and a grace that wins people to Christ? You know, and there, there's particular things that are easy for some folks and more difficult for others. And, you know, and then you've got um, requirements for behavior. You know, are you living a life in conformity with the gospel or are, are you out there, you know, uh, getting drunk on the weekends? You know what I mean? What, uh, pick the pick the vice. But there's there's those kinds of requirements that are involved in the process. And then you become a deacon. So you got two kinds of deacons. We'll talk about deacons another time. But you got permanent deacons and you got transitional deacons or vocational deacons, meaning like the person's ordained to the diaconate and stays that way. Pretty much. Uh, and then you have those that are made deacons because they're going to become priests. Once a deacon, always a deacon. Once a priest, always a priest. Once a bishop, always a bishop. So you, the person who, the deacon who becomes a priest then is, has already been in that process of formation, of development, of prayer, of study within the church, you know, and then the bishop will uh, lay his hands on the, the, the deacon becoming a priest and all of the other priests that are present will participate in that ordination because of what Paul says to Timothy. He says, remember, you know, what you received through the laying on of hands when, uh, when the elders lay their hands on you, i.e. priests. When you see the word elders in the New Testament, very often you could put the word English word priest there and you're not meaning the Levites, but you're meaning everything we've talked about here so far. The presbyteros who are priests, they're functioning with the apostles in a, in a sacramental way for the life of the church. So how long were you in ministry before you became a priest? Ordained as a priest, like knowing that it was something I felt I was supposed to do or just generally? It's like something you were supposed to do. So I wasn't, I was ordained in a different denomination where we were not sacramental. We didn't believe in the sacraments. Ordinances, and we had a right measure of holiness and respect for them. Um, for, well, if you count the, the years of, of ministry with different credentialing levels that were associated with that from 13, 14 years. And then it was in 2000, in the latter part of 2013, 2014, that we officially began our transition to the Anglican Communion and um, turned in the credentials that I had, and three, yeah. So from 2012, 2012 is when we really started thinking about it, seeing if it's it when we spent about 18 months in prayer and discerning if it was a decision we thought we ought to make. And then you come to that realization after you've made the decision, it doesn't mean that the bishop has, or that the, 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 uh, the committee, the ordination committee, it doesn't mean that they have agreed with it. Right. So in my case, as I said, I had all this, all these years of ordained service in another denomination and pastoral leadership had already led multiple churches and mission trips, all that stuff. And then the committee, when I met with them said, Hey, we, yeah, we, we recognize you, you're, you're called by God, you know? And the question was sort of like, what are you doing here? You know, why, why do you want to, what's moving you to want to come this way? But since you've already got so much over a decade somewhere else, all that involved, I didn't have my master's of divinity finished. So they wanted me to have that done. Um, I, I had about a third of it, uh, 25% of it done. 
because I was doing the slow, slow and go, you know, because I was active in, in ministry and um, some other things at the time. So 2014, latter part of 13, and then 2014, I was made a candidate for holy orders. So in our diocese, you have the aspirant, the person who's got questions, you, uh, or they're, they're thinking about it, right? Then you've got an inquirer, persons who are moving into inquiry. They're filling out forms. They're being in the process of discernment, um, you know. Then you, you go into postulancy. Then you go into candidacy. Well, in my case, they bumped me past all those discernment era, eras, uh, stages up right at the candidacy, meaning do X, Y, and Z, and all things being as they are, you'll be ordained in, in, as a deacon. So for me, that was 2014. I got that notification. I was a candidate. And then January of 2017, they made me a deacon. And then in the fall of 2017, I was made a priest. So we're talking a number of years. It, and that was with all of the years prior. You know, so that's something to think about because, I mean, I had already, like I said, already been out preaching and teaching and discipling and, and all that stuff, you know, raising up clergy for another denomination in some cases. And I wish uh, Alex and Johnny were here uh, to kind of talk about their experience, you know, as well. But it's a long, drawn-out um, process, rightfully so, because of what's, you know, the intent of what's, like, hey, we know well, what yeah. we know what we're going to make these make these guys. We know um, what authority is going to be placed in them. Um, yeah, like that, that's a lot. And it I, is. I think that's a just you know one of the last things before like the differentiating between a, a pastor or like a a priest and like I, I think from what I've experienced is a very big difference is uh, you know a lot of times you're a, a pastor will you know, learn how to be a pastor through a four-year school. And most of the times in a fairly sterile condition, in other right. words, like in the classroom, you know, yeah. it's not like the, you know, the, the dirty, like, yeah. down to business, like hands-on. A lot of times it's not, there's an element of that, but that's n not well, tra what it is. Traditionally, what, what would happen is that you knew as a teenager you were called into ordained service or you had a discernment on that or the bishop believed you were. So they began the process of making you an acolyte and then from an acolyte to a reader and some of these other minor orders, as they're often called, in the church so that when you went to college, you went knowing that you were going to finish college and go to seminary. So when you got to basically your last year of seminary, you were made a deacon. So you finished as a deacon you graduated, and then within that first year of a curacy, like an assisting priest somewhere, you were made a priest. Then you were given responsibilities to serve on staff at a congregate at a parish with priestly responsibilities. So that by the time you're in your latter part of your twenties, you can go out and you can be a rector somewhere. But that's by that point, you've already got ten to fifteen years of service within the church. In my case, I got that ten to I got fifteen years, almost twenty years. Of, of preparation and formation in the Pentecostal churches, mm -hmm. charismatic world that I was in, and then came into one that was structured like this. Um, and when Paul says, don't lay hands on anybody suddenly, and he's talking about ordaining people. It's not like, don't be, don't be sudden to lay hands on people for prayer. He's talking about ordaining elders. That's what he's talking to Timothy about. So, I mean, bishops are wise not to be too quick to lay hands on people because you don't know everything right away. And even if the bishop does have a word of knowledge or insight into something, it doesn't mean he should act quickly. Yeah. 
you know, he should be discerning because of what's going to be going on. Yeah. I think you really see that in uh, Cyprian's writings and part of mm-hmm. his outrage that he has against this other priesthood that's being propped up. Right. Is that he's like, what are you guys doing? Like, you know, like guys are coming back from being, you know, persecuted, being beaten, disfigured, and everybody's let's make him a priest. He's like, I might make you a reader. Like, yeah, you one, know. right. <laughs> one thing, do, yeah, one thing doesn't translate to the other. We, we make people make that mistake all the time. One thing doesn't translate to another. It doesn't work that way. And with the priesthood, as with the other orders, there's no givebacks. Like your license to minister can be suspended, but the grace that you receive doesn't go away. I mean, this is the new covenant. And and you to what you're saying about pastors, you don't call yourself. If under the old covenant you couldn't make yourself a Levitical priest, how much more under the new? You can't put yourself under the apostolic succession. You can't do it. You're raised into it. You're 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 designated to serve in that by the church. The church expresses her will. Um, and the bishop is there to say yay or nay to that, or the bishop says, hey, you know, would you consider? I mean, there's a variety of ways that this happens, but I mean, that that's something that you receive. You don't take it. And if it's that way under the old covenant, how much under more under the new? Mm-hmm. You can't get rid. You don't, you don't give that grace away. It's very important. Very important. You are a priest forever. Well, I think that we uh, hit this topic pretty well. I think we got it down. Um, Yeah. I think that's going to probably be it for this week. Um, Once again, you know, I'm Caleb and I'm here with Adam. And I'm Daryl. And I hope that uh, you all tune in next week. Goodbye.